Well, good morning and welcome again to In Town Church. It's great to see you. If you're visiting with us, I'd love to meet you. Uh, I'll be at the door on your way out, so if you don't want to meet me, you can go out the side entrance, but love to just say hello, uh, welcome you personally to In Town. Uh, love if you have a moment to hear a little bit of your story and what brought you here this morning and how uh, we can help you. Uh, we've been going through, if you're new, a study of the Gospel of Luke, and we've got a few more weeks, although we're not quite through with the book. We're in chapter 21, but we're going to take a break for Advent and go through a series on the Psalms, and then we'll pick up the rest of Luke uh, during um, Holy Week, during the um, beginning on Ash Wednesday, and working through the Easter season, through the Passion Week, through the, the end of Jesus' life. But here, we're in Luke 21. He's in Jerusalem. And this is our gospel reading. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus says, said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind now not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. 
Father, we pray that you would minister to us, that you would grant us understanding of this very difficult, very complex passage. I pray that you would help us to wade through it and on the other end, understand more fully your gospel, more fully what Jesus has set out to do in the world and in our individual lives. Would you help us this morning? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's a difference in waiting on a parade and waiting until dad comes home. Were you ever told that when you were growing up? Just wait till dad gets home. Or maybe you were fearful of your mom and your dad said, just wait till mom gets home. You've done it this time. Just wait till dad gets home. And you would pace around your room, dreading the moment that dad came home. And you'd do anything to avoid it or forestall it. Or maybe it's waiting for the test results from your doctor, waiting for a jury's deliberation, waiting for your performance review. But waiting for a parade is different, of course. If your mom tells you there's a parade on Saturday, you pace around your room for different reasons. It seems like it'll never get here. You can't wait. Now, if you don't know about the parade and you see people clearing the streets and you hear sirens, you see cop cars coming over the horizon, if you don't know there's a parade, you don't know why this is happening and whether it signifies something really cool or it signifies danger, whether you should park your car because you want to get out and watch the parade or whether you should floor it and get out of there because you don't know what's happening. This passage is very strange, it's very symbolic, and maybe even a little scary, but it's meant to be good news. It's meant to be good news about a coming parade that all of these things that could be foreboding, that could signify danger, that could be scary, will be coming. And it's a message of hope. It's a message that you, when you see those things, don't cower in fear and run, but you lift up your head and receive your redemption. We're gonna look at this passage just from two angles. One is the destiny of the Jerusalem temple and then the destiny of all temples everywhere. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago, in the very beginning of chapter 21, Jesus comes into the Jerusalem temple, and it's an event called the cleansing of the temple. He comes in and throws over the money changers' tables. He cleanses the temple and drives out the money changers. It's this very violent, very evocative moment in the ministry of Jesus. And so, according to Luke, the temple and its placement in Jerusalem and its placement in the spiritual life of Israel must be very important because he keeps going back to it and he keeps contrasting the temple and its significance with Jesus and his significance. And the temple becomes or comes to symbolize everything that Jesus opposes. But Jesus' hearers and those that operate the temple won't let it go so easily. Now, a little background. This is Israel's second temple. The first had been destroyed in the Babylonian exile in the 6th century. And then it was rebuilt when the Jewish people came back from Persia to Israel to rebuild the temple. And then around around B.C. 20, King Herod the Great almost doubles its size. He builds it, makes it extraordinarily big, huge, magnificent, beautiful. He spares no expense It was likely the largest or at least the grandest architectural project 
in the first century. And so pilgrims pouring into the city from around the rural areas couldn't help but be impressed. They maybe were even a little overwhelmed by its size and magnificence. And it should be that. It should be grand and beautiful because it was the abode of God. It was where he rested and resided and made his presence known among the people. And even Jesus' disciples seemed to be stuck in that universe where the temple was the center of the religious universe, of the whole world. And the disciples, oblivious to the gist of Jesus cleansing the temple only a few paces earlier, say, Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. And Jesus sees that they don't get it, that they don't understand the gist of what Jesus has done in his cleansing of the temple. And he thinks, well, let me say it a little bit different way. And he gives us this passage, and it's actually quite longer. We only read a portion of it, about two-thirds but he gives them this apocalyptic, prophetic monologue about the temple and about Jesus and what he has done to replace the temple. Not one stone, he says, of this grand, magnificent, beautiful building will be left standing on top of themselves. Now, what are we to take from this? How are we to interact as modern people two millennia removed from this event? And it sounds very strange and very distant. How are we to wrestle with this? Well, there's lots of imagery and symbolism, and it's easy to get lost in the details. And we certainly don't have time this morning to explore every facet of this passage. But what is he talking about ultimately? He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about the end of the world. He's talking about apocalypse. Sarah Vowell, who is a a writer for a number of outlets and also a popular history writer, has said, the end of the world, which has not happened, obviously, is the most important event in history. And it's not just historians that think this, but also the Simpsons. If you've seen the movie, the best part of the movie, according to me, is when it's revealed that the church where the family spends so much of its time and the bar where Homer spends so much of his time are actually right next door to one another. And the premise of the movie is that they're gonna, the EPA is going to put this glass dome on all of Springfield. And so it's the end of the world as they know it. And they simultaneously learn of this news, of this coming destruction. And the people in church run out screaming and run to the bar, and the people in the bar run out screaming and go to church. Isn't that classic? Isn't that how we think about the end of the world? We don't know what we're going to do. And even if the symbolism and historic context of this passage seems strange and remote, the questions that Jesus is answering are extremely relevant. Jesus weaves together this talk of apocalyptic and, the, and prophetic talk about nothing less than the end of the world, but he begins it tying it to the end of the temple. And it, it had become symbolic of everything that Jesus had opposed and had come to set right. The perversion of Israel's call to be a light to all the nations. The structuring of religion to serve the powerful and the rich. And an unrepentant religious 
formalism practiced by the scribes and the Pharisees and teachers of the law. That's what the temple had come to embody, and that's exactly what Jesus had come to oppose in all of his ministry. And if he's right, if he's really the Messiah, if God is to vindicate him, then it would include in some way the destruction of that temple edifice. And Jesus becomes very specific here and says it'll even involve the destruction of the actual building itself, not just symbolic, although it is that, but also a literal. And this would be as unthinkable to Jewish people as it would be for you and I, if we're Americans, to think about the destruction of the White House and the U.S. Congressional building. It's very important in the life of Israel. And there are remnants of religious Orthodox Jews today, as well as evangelical Christians, that see the end times as being uh, based or started by the rebuilding of now the third temple. And I read a story this week about Clyde Lott, who's a cattle, uh, I want to say cattle brewer, but he's not a brewer. He's a cattle raiser, cattle farmer. Uh, That's the word I was looking for. And he's attempting to breed a line of red heifer cows uh, and spotless red heifer. And he's, he reads his Bible and he, he, he finds this obscure verse in Numbers and he notices, wow, I have red cows in my farm, but they're not perfectly spotless. So I'm going to breed a line of red spotless heifer cows, but heifer and cow are synonymous, but cows that were used in the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system. And so if we can restart that system, then we can rebuild the temple. And Orthodox Jews in Israel catch wind of this. And they offer to pay him $2,000 a cow. And they want a huge herd of around 200 cows. And they're going to fly these cows over to Israel on a 747. That's how central this is to the Jewish identity, to Israel's religious system. And when you say you're going to destroy the system, you're going to be destroyed. And that's exactly what happens. Only a few paces hence that Jesus is destroyed by the religious system. He is sent to the cross. And he says that this will be a conflict between Jesus and the temple, Jesus and the Jewish historical religious system, and, or actually the corruption of that system that will, re, that will result in the betrayal by family members, will result in war between nations, and in persecutions of those who follow Jesus, and even Jesus himself. Now, we need to look at this with sort of bifocal lenses because there's two different things going on here. We need to look at this kind of bifocal prophecy because we said, as I mentioned earlier, destruction of the temple in a literal way, but also in a spiritual, in a symbolic way. He says, not one stone will be left standing. Literally speaking, this temple will fall to the ground. And the old system survives for another 40 years or so. But in AD 70 comes the days of vengeance that Jesus refers to to fulfill all that is written in verse 22. And as Titus, the warrior of Rome, arrives and his armies sweep in and besiege the city and destroy the literal temple only a few years after Jesus said this. But you see, it's not just the literal temple that's destroyed. It's not just the literal temple that's replaced. But Jesus himself says that he is the fulfillment of everything that the temple system represented, pointed to, and was supposed to be. In John's gospel, Jesus says, destroy this temple, meaning 
himself, his own body, destroyed this temple, and he will raise it up again in three days. There's the destruction of the temple and the crucifixion, and then there's the raising of the temple again in his resurrection. You see, destruction literally and also resurrection literally, but there's also a symbolic value to Jesus' death and resurrection and that he becomes the replacement temple. He becomes the true temple. He's the end of the sacrificial system. That's a very Jewish way of saying that the spiritual hopes of the world have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He goes to the cross to pay for the sins of the world, to open up a new pathway to God based not on merit, based not on achievement, not on the the goodness and the fullness of what you have to offer, but based upon Jesus as the final sacrifice. And then he's raised as the eternal system The final sacrifice has been made. He is the centerpiece of worship. He's the centerpiece of spirituality. He's saying everything that the temple pointed to, the whole hopes of Israel and the religion of Yahweh is now fulfilled in Jesus. And so he is the temple. He's the place to come to worship. He's the true pathway to God. He's everything that that system pointed to. Now, if you're new to Christianity or exploring Christianity, this connection of this literal temple to a sort of symbolic temple may seem a little bit remote and distant, but the temple represented the gateway to God, to what is true, to a very hopeful future. And in that way, we all have temples in which we worship. Whether they're literal or not, we have temples where we go and bow down and we go to worship. And there's something there that we say, this is what's true, this is the hope for the future, and this is what I'm staking my life in. And so we need not, on, not, we need not just to talk about the destruction of the literal temple in Jerusalem and the temple system, but we need to talk about the destiny of our temples, the destiny of all temples. I listened to or read the transcript of a frontline, PBS frontline episode on the apocalypse. It was done a few years ago. And Michael Barkin, who is a poli-sci professor at Syracuse, says this, awareness of the millennium has become so pervasive in our culture that it's turned everyone into some sort of millenarian. Now, a millenarian is just a belief system, religious or not, that hopes for some massive societal transformation in the future and has a means by which they're going about to bring that to pass. Everyone is some sort of millenarian, regardless of, and this is key, the degree or kind of religiosity. It's also extraordinarily diverse. It includes religious millennialism from a variety of traditions as well as political millennialism on both the left and the right. Most strikingly involves what seems to me a new variety of millennialism, what I have called the improvisational style. By that, I mean groups that appropriate symbols and ideas from a wide variety of sources, both religious and secular, to create novel and quite idiosyncratic new belief systems. 
Well, that's a very trendy, very Portlandy way of thinking about the apocalypse and about the millennium and about what would bring truth to bear and what would bring a hope for the future. We pick and choose and grab from very a variety of sources and create this kind of hodgepodge or improv- improvisational style of thinking about the millennium and about the future. And we see even in popular media fascination with the end of the world and all these dystopian ideas. We see it in film and literature, Children of Men, The Road, Walking Dead, Hunger Games, just to name a few, all bestsellers, all on the top of the New York Times bestseller list, all made into movies or, or TV. And aren't these imaginations, aren't these hypotheses born out of a fear of the future, a fear of the unknown, and cultivating some type of hope, some type of salvation in the midst of this unknown future. There's lots of different temples that you and I worship at. There's lots of different ways of thinking about forestalling life's catastrophes and getting a handle on the uncertainty of life. The first part of Jesus' answer deals specifically with events that are set to happen in the near future, with the destruction of the temple and the running out of the Jerusalem religious system. But he also speaks here of the coming of the Son of Man in a cloud with power and great glory, and the coming of the kingdom of God and upon all who dwell upon the face of the earth. He looks forward to a time when everyone's temple will fall under his gaze. He looks forward to a time when your and my religious ways of thinking, our religious systems and our religious beliefs will be confronted by Jesus, the true temple. On that day, all religions and substitutes for religions will pass under the critical eye of Jesus, just as the physical temple in Israel had. Now, there's many different ways of dealing with the future. There's many different ways of creating a hope in our sometimes hopeless world, of dealing with dystopian ideas about what might happen, whether it's an asteroid or a UFO or a virus. There's lots of different ways, but Jesus hints at and directly addresses a few here. We're gonna look at just three. There's a number more, but we're gonna look at just three, and then we'll conclude. Safety, certainty, and the civic. So we look to forestall the end of the world by creating safety, by looking for certainty, and then in civic ways. First of all, safety. Luke 21 is a a passage that none of us really want to hear. We'd rather not hear it. We want Jesus to say something else entirely. If we're going to believe in this Christianity system, it's got to be better than this. It's got to create some better sense of hope for the here and now, not just What's coming? We want an alternative set of promises and predictions. We want Jesus to say, don't worry about trials and persecutions, for I shall deliver you from them before they happen. Or, if you'll become a Christian, that life will go well for you. You'll have the money that you need. Your children will turn out well. You'll be healthy and die at a comfortable old age in your sleep, and you'll have a great career in between. And we see how much we have built a temple to that safety, that idea of safety and security by looking at how rattled we become when things don't turn out that way. How angry we become with people who threaten that safety, who threaten that view of the world. 
These visions of safety and comfort have become temples of worship. And to truly grasp Jesus, to truly be a Christian, we have to see, we have to ask him to tear them down, to get rid of them, to cleanse them, that no stone is left unturned in our temples of worship to safety and security. That's one. He gives us an alternative plan. He says something different entirely that persecutions will come. In fact, if you become a Christian, it's going to intensify. Now, that may not be the reality for many of us in this room because we live in an anomaly. We live in the United States where it's very protected and our worship rights are protected. But go to the Sudan. Go to other parts of the world, in the Middle East, you'll find it very different. And the predictions that Jesus has are more true of Christianity around the world than they are here. This is an aberration. Secondly, we look at certainty, or we long for certainty. And if you are familiar with Christianity at all, you've been witness to this cottage industry in Christianity of predicting the future of looking at these complex passages of symbolism and then try to discern exactly what they're saying about when the future will come. And it's exactly what Jesus says, don't do. But passages like this one are are not meant to make us sort of of these starry-eyed surveyors of the future, but to inspire discipleship, to inspire faithfulness, to inspire patience, even when we don't know the future, even when we can't sort out what's coming ahead. We must remember that nothing lasts, nothing is fair, nothing is perfect, and if you're a Christian, you're not home yet. And you have to have a realistic assessment of what life is all about and what life is going to throw at you. Jesus does not promise here protection in the immediate sense, but he promises to be with you, and he promises a future where those things will no longer be reality. Nothing lasts, nothing is fair, nothing is perfect, And if you're a Christian, you're not home yet. There's no secret code in the Bible by which we can predict or control the future. There's no bank account large enough to give us certainty. There's no house that won't leak and always be assured to grow in value. And as they become our temples, whether it's a secret code in the Bible, whether it's our house, whether it's our bank account, whether it's our spouse, insofar as those become temples of worship, then we'll constantly be confused, we'll be flustered, and we'll be anxious about the future. Safety, certainty, and the civic. There are also political ways to seek control. And how timely is this? Because many of us are highly invested in the outcome of the election in just a few weeks. Either the world will be saved or it will come to an end in just a few short Tuesdays. So be prepared. And thinking, responding in that way gives that person, whoever it is, too much power in your life. In that day, Jesus says, flee Jerusalem. When that day comes, don't depend upon the cultural surroundings. Don't depend upon the religious surroundings. Don't depend upon the city walls, the civic gates, the way that your country does things. Don't depend upon those things. When that day comes, flee Jerusalem. What he is saying is that Jerusalem disciples won't uh, won't protect you. Its religious orientation won't insulate you. And this gives us a window into the true power behind the cosmos. 
It tells us about what's really going on, and it's not based upon the rising or the falling of political power or party. What Jesus says is flee Jerusalem. Don't depend upon the city walls. Don't depend upon the promises that a particular civic leader or politician gives you. They don't control the future. They don't control your happiness. They don't control what Jesus is doing in our city, in our country, and around the world. But finally, friends, this passage is not just teaching us to be realistic about the present or only avoiding false systems of worship and false temples. But what it's telling us is about how to have true hope for the future. Jürgen Moltmann, one of my favorite commentators, says, if we abide by our conviction that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God to the point of his death on the cross, then he brought the messianic hope and the fellowship of God to all those who have to live in the shadow of the cross, the men and women who suffer injustice and the unjust. But Christ is not the meek and helpless victim of suffering. Through his surrender, God seeks out the lost beings he has created and enters into their forsakenness, bringing them into his fellowship, which can never be lost. The Christian hope is directed towards a novum ultimum, towards a new creation of all things by the God of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, there's all sorts of different temples that you can look to. Explore them, investigate them, and keep investigating Jesus. Keep investigating him as the true center of worship, as the true temple. And he ends with, at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in cloud, in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. When you see the cop cars coming, you see the street clearing, you hear the noise, if you understand Jesus, if you're connected with him, it's not scary, it's not dangerous, it's a parade coming. Lift up your head because you are receiving what you're waiting for. You are receiving your hope. You're receiving your redemption. Would you do so now as we pray? Father, I pray that you would help us to know how much you long to be with us, how much you long to bring that final day when the things that hurt your children, the things that cause us pain and anguish will be no more. And I pray that as those things enter into our lives, that we would not look at them as a reason to disbelieve and walk away, but to walk towards you more fully. And would you sit with us in our pain? Would you sit with us in our anguish and our sense of loss and give us hope? Give us your redemption. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.